Well, welcome to another edition of Rolling Valley Stories. We have a special guest today for you Uh-oh. listeners out there. <laughs> I'm super excited today because today we have Jake Oplanoff, who's our bishop. I'm just super excited to get to know him better. Most of you know him already, but I'm excited to, to get to know him and hear some of his stories and, and experiences and share what he's learned in his life uh, with us. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for doing this. You, you're a good sport taking on this duty, and, and you're doing a fantastic job. Really appreciate it. Uh, well, I appreciate that. Well, speaking of that, what I'd like to start with is tell me about this podcast idea and why we have a word podcast. This was your brainchild, right? Your inspiration as, as our leader. Tell me why you wanted to start a word podcast. Yeah, good, good question. When this call was extended, one of the first thoughts, maybe impressions, if you want to use that word, was that we have a fantastic ward. We were in the throes of COVID, and I just felt like we were a little disconnected in a lot of ways, right? I mean, just socially, maybe emotionally, a little bit spiritually, just disconnected from each other, and it was, it was tough. We, we all have our own COVID stories, we can tell. And I was listening to another podcast that's kind of church-related, and the host started talking about a ward podcast he used to do and, and how it was a neat way to connect people. And I was at the gym, right? I'm, I'm working out and I'm listening to this. And it just kind of got in my head and got stuck there. And I, and I thought, yeah, that's interesting. We all, especially living here, we're all stuck on a bus or a metro or in a car. We've got plenty of time where we have headphones on. Why not have this kind of unique way where we could hear each other's stories and, and maybe feel a little more connected? And that podcaster talked about in his ward, people who otherwise would have been complete strangers to each other, other than saying hi to each other at, in Sunday at church, they now could say, hey, you grew up there, I grew up there, or you went on your mission there, well, I was in that mission. And just, they were able to make connections they never otherwise would have been able to make. And again, back to that impression maybe that I had of trying to connect us as a ward just a little bit more, I thought, hey, maybe this is just one more way to do it. And the ward council didn't tell me it was a horrible idea. So <laughs> I'm glad they were good sports. And in some ways, I think they were like, yeah, yeah, whatever, Bishop. And, and when I didn't let it go, they said, okay, and I hope it's been good. If nobody else has gotten anything out of it, I've really enjoyed it. I've felt connected to those who have been brave enough to tell their stories, and I've appreciated that. Well, I can tell you from my experience, I have people come up to me uh, you know, every week and tell me that they enjoy the podcast. They tell me that they're learning a lot about the members and that they really enjoy it. And so I know that for me personally, as I get to know, because I get to do the interviews, mm-hmm. for me, it's been fantastic to just get to know people and learn more about them. And now I, I'm building that connection. And that's the intent, right, of the podcast. Right. And, uh, and so I appreciate you sharing your vision with us and helping us to get to know each other. So thanks for Thanks well, for starting and, this. And thank you for taking it on. I gave you an ill-formed idea, and you've turned it into a, a beautiful thing. So thanks, Brett. <laughs> really appreciate that. All right. Well, let's talk about you now. So tell me, where did you grow up? What was your early life like? I grew up in Oakley, Utah. Zion, we call it there. It was, it's a beautiful little kind of farm town, bedroom community about 45 minutes southeast of Salt Lake City. So up in the mountains, kind of by Hebrew City Park City. And it was my dad's first teaching job out of college was there, and they still live there. I was born, not there, but I think we moved there when I was one, and I grew up there. A very small town. My graduating class was 82 people. Small high school, you know, lots of cows. (laughs) Again, Hebrew City, Park City, we're not too far away, but it wasn't like that at all. You know, small country town, you know, small town values. In fact, they still do a Fourth of July program every year that's like something out of a Norman Rockwell painting. This last year, my grandmother passed away, so I had a chance to go back, and it was right around the Fourth of July, so I got to go back and go to the little parade and go to the little patriotic program and go to the rodeo and it just, it's, it, there's nothing like it in the world. It, it is like a Norman Rockwell painting. It's, it's a lot of fun. A great place to grow up. I really enjoyed growing up there. So your father was a teacher? He was. Mm-hmm. And tell me about your family. How many siblings do you have? I have two younger brothers, just three boys. 
My parents, that's an interesting story. My dad was a kind of a hick that grew up in the oil fields of western Colorado. My mom grew up near the campus of Stanford. Strange turn of events, they met. It couldn't be more different, <laughs> but it's worked somehow, and I'm glad that they found each other or I wouldn't be here, but that's my family in a nutshell. And everybody in the family is a member of the church. You grew up yes. in kind of the standard Utah. Standard, I guess, Utah story, if you will. Yeah, yeah, the, that small town, most are members there. All of us grew up in the church in our, in our family, my, my parents as well. So growing up in a small town, there's, there's always great stories. Uh, what was a typical Friday night like for you as a, as a teenager? As a teenager, my best friends and I, about five others and myself, it was generally jumping in a car and one night we shot a potato cannon, uh, other nights playing with paintballs. When I was a youth, there were girls camps. Other stakes from outside the area would come and do girls camp. And so we thought, because we were so mature, we thought it'd be fun to sneak up to the girls camps in the mountains around our little valley where we grew up and we would sneak in and drop their tents and that would scare them. And Really, really sinister stuff. I mean, really sinister. As I look back on it, I'm glad. It was kind of wholesome fun, thank goodness. Not, nothing terrible, but yeah, we had a good time. It was fun. It was a fun place to grow up. I, I don't regret at all growing up there. It was a great place to grow up. What was your relationship like with your brothers growing up? Probably like most. It was, there were times when we were certainly enemies. I think for the most part, we were friends. Right before I left on my mission, ironically, that was probably the hardest part for me leaving on my mission. I thought my brothers and I were as good of friends as we'd ever been, and I kind of intuitively knew that being gone for two years would be hard. And now, and, and this is not a reflection, maybe just of our family culture, we text every once in a while. I mean, we're also busy with our own lives. I'm here two yeah. time zones away from them. They both live in Utah still. I'm two time zones away. We don't stay in touch a lot, but I think we have a good relationship. I love them and they're both very successful and, and great fathers and it's, it's fun to stay in touch with them. Last year, for my dad's 70th birthday, we, we all met in Wisconsin and went to a Packers game on Monday night because <laughs> my dad grew up a Packers fan and it was, you know, that was one of those bucket list. We only spent 36 hours together, but it was fantastic and, and just a real a treasured memory, my, my brothers and I and my dad. So what was it like for you in high school? Small school. I think I mentioned my graduating class was 82. So I did all the sports. If you could walk and chew gum at the same time, you could play a sport. So I was in music. I tried to work hard at school. So it was fun, though. It was, it was, it was good. I don't think going to a small school, I, I missed out on any opportunities. I mean, our kids here have a pretty crazy good scholastic opportunity, right? If, if you yeah. can do well at this school, you can probably do well anywhere. But I don't feel like I was short at all. It was great. I, again, no, no regrets. I feel like I wasn't shortchanged on my education growing up, and I loved playing football and basketball and baseball. And I loved being in band and, and just had a lot of great opportunities and, and great unique experiences. You were in band? Yes. What instrument did you trombone. play? Trombone. I played trombone, trombone yes. Okay. In fact, since I wasn't good enough to play sports in college, I, I did band at, at college for a few years. I wasn't a music major. I just went up and did it, and it was fun and made a lot of friends. And when I wasn't a music major after two years, I'm like, all right, I can't. I, I got I to gotta focus now. But it was great. I'm really glad I did. You know, 200 automatic friends as soon as I showed up at college, which was a nice thing. <laughs> uh, a lot of fun. It was good. Well, tell me a little bit about how your testimony developed as a, as a young child. When do you think that you realized that you had a testimony? Well, line upon line, probably. I'm, I'm grateful, good parents, a good example, a lot of great, just salt of the earth people. Like when I think of my young men leaders when I was a young man, I get a little emotional, those guys, the, the effect they had on me. And at the time, I probably didn't have my own testimony, but I knew I wanted to be like them because they seemed to have it figured out, the important stuff in life. I had a few real seminal experiences, I think. One, I was nearly hit by a car without going into the, to the detail. I, well, it did hit me, but it didn't damage me too badly. and I. 
I later was just, even as a young boy, able to recognize that for whatever reason, I think I was spared and, and there was some divine intervention there. And that, that touched me deeply. Well, tell us what happened. It was, it was some older boys and me, about eight of us, riding our bikes. We were going to go play football somewhere and we had to ride across a busy highway. And they went first and I was a little slow behind them and I didn't look both ways like I should. And as I came up kind of out of the, the borrow pit onto the highway, I, it was kind of, kind of spiritual and personal, but I'm happy to share it. I heard a voice say, stop. And I stopped and I looked and right then the car hit my front tire and knocked me over. I broke its side view mirror off drug myself and my bike off the road. I was a little bloodied, but I was okay. The poor lady was hysterical. She thought she'd hurt me, but I was fine. And, and there was a, a nice lady there in a house across the street who patched me up. And I asked all the boys when I kind of came to myself, I'm like, who told me to stop? Which one of you yelled to stop? And they're like, well, none of us said it. And I think even in my boy mind, I realized, oh, wow, I, I know who said that. And uh, never forgot that. And not sure to this day why maybe I was spared, but I feel like there was some divine providence there. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that, that was an experience. Another one later in seminary. This is why I tell the kids to go to seminary. <laughs> I was a sophomore, and we were doing Doctrine and Covenants, and watching a video one day about the prophet Joseph, and I just had that feeling rush into my heart. And thankfully, in my 15-year-old mind, I, I had enough sense to realize, wait a second, why do I feel this way? What's going on here? And, and I think I had the wherewithal, thank goodness, to to recognize that was a spirit testifying to me that Joseph really is who we claim he was. Mm -hmm. And that stuck with me, right? That was, a, that was a big deal for me as a high school kid. I was never quite the same after that. And that served me so well when I went on my mission that I could testify to people that, yeah, Joseph Smith, he saw what he said he saw. He is who, who we say he is. And that was a big deal for me. So those were just a few of the, of the really, I would say, great experiences that I had that helped me to form my testimony. And there were probably a thousand other little ones along the way that, that I'm grateful for. When do you think that you realized that those two experiences formed your testimony? Probably not till much later, quite frankly. As I was preparing for my mission, really getting serious those last few months, and right when I got my call, I had an inspired stake president who said, hey, you should read the Book of Mormon one more time. And I was like, oh, I already tried to, you know, I've read it. Yeah. But he said, yeah, read it one more time. And I was at college, and, and I really got in the zone, and it just jumped off the pages at me, the truths there. Ironically, I don't think I really had the kind of really strong confirming witness I wanted until I was in my second area on my mission and had a really special experience where I felt like I could go out and really with full assurance tell people, hey, you really need to read this book. Um, it has changed my life. So I'm not sure how to answer your question. When, when I knew, like it could have been just a few years ago, Elder Anderson in conference talked about spiritual memories and he challenged us to write down our spiritual memories and I went home and I did that. And as I kind of recounted all these spiritual memories all along the way up until then, it was 20-something. And just in aggregate, I kind of looked at that and I was amazed. And I was grateful that an apostle challenged us to do that. And in aggregate, when I looked at all this, I thought, my goodness, Oplanop, you've had, you've had a lot of tender mercies here, man. You've had a lot of testimony tender mercies. And, you know, don't forget them. That was just a few years ago. So I think I'm constantly, hopefully, having that testimony strengthened more and more and more over time. I was in a leadership meeting once and the, the speaker said, something to the effect of a testimony is not a one-time thing. Yeah. It's something that you can earn, gain, and then regain over and over again. Yeah. That experience that you had sounds exactly like that, right? Where yeah. you look back on your life and you had a testimony, you have a testimony, and you look back on it, and as you review those experiences, you realize that you, know, you just reaffirmed your testimony yeah. one yeah. more time. I wish I could say September 2nd, 1997. <laughs> That's the day I knew. I, I, I can't put a date on it. I was just talking with my son tonight. There's a great quote. I wish I could remember it. 
as something to the effect of, for every Alma the Younger, for every Paul, most of us don't have miraculous experiences like that. It's line upon line, precept upon precept, and after a, a lifetime of striving and trying, we realize that that seed of faith has grown into an oak of testimony, something like that, right? right. And, and that's probably how it feels for a lot of us, I think. So tell me how you decided to go on a mission then, because you said that you know, your testimony was line upon line upon line, and you didn't mm -hmm. really have one, one huge, you had a couple of experiences. Yeah. Did you always want to go on a mission? How did you make that decision? I, I think I, I did. As I was pondering this interview, I was thinking about that. I, I think, you know, my, my parents, my dad always talked fondly of his mission. He'd pull out pictures and show us. I still remember to this day young men from my ward returning from their missions and, and talking about it and almost without fail saying, hey, it was hard, but it was the best two years of my life. You got to do this, right? Those young men leaders I mentioned earlier, just always just inspiring and talking up missions. And, and I, I think I always, yeah, I don't remember a time when I didn't want to go. I'm grateful that I had that goal because I think it helped me through a lot of tough decisions in high school, right? High school's tough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of things going on, yeah. a lot of temptations. Even that first semester at college, you know, there were some people and some influences that could have deviated me away from that, but thank goodness I had that goal and I didn't, I didn't want to miss out on that opportunity. And I always wanted to go. And, and when it got to the end, to actually really get serious and make the decision and go through the interview process, I, I honestly don't recall any hesitance. I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful that I had good people around me that helped me kind of set that goal. You know, it seemed like the essence of everything I wanted to do and be. And, I don't regret it. It's one of the, you know, the best two years for my life, we like to say. I'm really excited, our young men and any young women of the world who choose to, I absolutely highly endorse a mission. They're incredible. And, so and tell and me I where you awesome. went on your mission. I went to Bogota, Colombia. That was great. It's funny, when I opened my call, my dad ran to get an encyclopedia. For the youth that may or may not be listening, that's a book that used to tell us information before we had Google. <laughs> so he grabbed an encyclopedia. My mom started crying because all she thought of was drug cartel and murderers <laughs> and my brothers didn't care because they were younger and they were you know whatever but it was great it was two years it's the northernmost country in South America Spanish good people just really good people I feel bad you know when you hear Colombia all of us kind of think ooh you know because of the news but just for the most part just fantastic people kind do anything for you great mission presidents great companions it was it was really great Tell me about the first time that you walked off the airplane and we're standing there in Columbia. How did you feel? Tired. They, they, sent, us, they sent us on an overnight flight and I didn't get much sleep, so I was tired. It was interesting. I don't remember the airport per se. I remember the, one of the assistants to the president saying, hey, over here, you know, and we, we followed him out to the van. And it is, an, it is in America, so I remember driving in on the freeway from the airport to get to the mission home and, like, people running across the freeway. I feel like we were barely avoiding them, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, where are we? And it's just... Different culture, different different place, but I was, you know, not not the gleaming structures that we have here. You know, there are a lot of brick and mud-looking places. It's not a third world. A lot of it's not third world. There are some pretty humble people there in humble circumstances. But that was my first impression, I guess. Is well, we're not in we're not in Kansas anymore, or Oakley anymore, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> as you look back on your mission. Mm -hmm. Is there one or two experiences that you look on that really helped either build your testimony or that you think fondly on? Yeah. I got a call. I was still young in my mission. I think it was in my second area. Still trying to, I was getting, I was okay at Spanish, but I was still very raw. And got the call, hey, emergency transfer. You need to be on a bus tomorrow and head up to Bogota. I was five hours out of Bogota. Mm. And so, okay, what's this about? I don't think I ever really found out. So 
Me and another elder switched places. I went up to Bogota. My companion, I met him there. Barely had time to drag my suitcase to the apartment. He's like, well, we got to go. We've got a first discussion. I'm like, okay. And so we walk over to that first discussion and good first discussion. They seem interested, you know, said we could come back for a second, which wasn't uncommon. And during the second, one of the most spiritual experiences I've ever had. Back in those days, we didn't have the mission lesson manual they have now where you follow the spirit. We had our rote discussions, right? And my companion felt inspired to ask the will you be baptized part in a completely different spot of the lesson. Kind of, you know, he wasn't following the script, but he felt inspired to. And the husband, who was a good guy, he kind of hummed and hawed. And the sister said, well, I don't care what he does. I'm a yes. And he got really humble and he said, well, I need to tell you guys my story real quick. And, And he did. He said, a few years ago, I was not in a good place. And my wife and I were holding hands through jail cell bars because I was in jail. And right then and there, we told ourselves and promised ourselves and promised God that if he would show us his true church, because we just, we rationalized that if, if a God loves us, he's got to have a church out there for us. And if, if it's there, and if he showed us what his church was, we would join it. And she said, and I haven't forgotten. <laughs> and he humbled himself. And he said, yeah, this is it. We found it. This is it. And wow. to this day, they're strong, faithful members in Colombia. They're leaders in Colombia. And that was such a game changer. Like if I, if I had to knock every door in that country and I only ever met that couple, it would have been worth it because they were, they were ready and they were looking. And, and how lucky I was to be there, right, on an emergency transfer. I, I don't think that was coincidence. Somebody in the outside world might say, oh, that's a cute story. But I think we... We of faith recognized that there was some divine intervention there and a merciful Heavenly Father let me be involved in that. And that was awesome. That was great. Why do you think you were the one that was chosen to be there for that? Have I you don't, ever thought about that? I have. I have. I think my companion and I, and he was, he's still a friend. He lives here in the area. He, he Navajo Indian. And he and I, I don't know, maybe something about our personalities that helped connect with them. I have a testimony that the Lord puts us in places where we need to be, whether we're missionaries or, or not. But he sends us places where our personalities and our demeanors and our interests, it'll be a perfect match and it'll make a perfect connection for his children that are really, really looking. And for those of us who are really, really trying to share, he'll, he'll match make. And I think there was just something about that companion and myself and that couple. It was divine matchmaking. I really believe it. We stayed in touch. You know, we, we talk on Facebook sometimes. They met me at the airport when I was coming home and they gave me a big hug and they handed me a postcard that they had signed and a few years later when I was in college really struggling with something, I just happened on that postcard and it said, to Elder Oplanop, our star missionary. And that's what I needed that day. It pulled me out of a pretty dark place and it was just, I've been thankful to the Lord ever since that he, he let me have that experience. You said there was a couple experiences on your mission. Was there one other one? Boy, just so many experiences. Just neat, neat times. Times when there was yelling and dogs barking and stuff, and then we'd get to the part where we were talking about Joseph Smith and him kneeling down in the grove and testifying that he saw a pillar of light. And and just it almost without fail, things would get quiet and the spirit would be there. Because that's the thing that makes us different, right? Columbia, very Christian country, very Catholic country. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, yeah, they're all in on that. Joseph Smith is what makes us different. The Book of Mormon is what makes us different. And I was always amazed at how, at that point, the Lord always kind of moved the chess pieces around, it felt like, to allow those people, if they really wanted to know, to feel a special portion of the Spirit about the restoration of the Gospel. And that if they really were true seekers, 
here was their chance to listen to the still small voice and recognize that there was something different about this message. You know, all of us feel the spirit in different ways. Mm -hmm. You've described a little bit about you know your experience. Yeah. Tell us a little bit how you feel. How do you feel the spirit? No, it's a great question. I was just talking with one of my kids tonight about this because it's different for all of us, right? It's Doctrine and Covenants talks about uh, burning in the bosom, but Dallin H. Oaks has said, I've never felt that. I don't know what that feels like. <laughs> so it's different for all of us, right? And, and he's, right. he's up there. Right. <laughs> for me, it's, it, it's an extreme sense of peace. It's a sense of warmth. It's a sense of comfort. Sometimes it's, as Joseph Smith said, pure knowledge. I'll just get a thought in my mind and it makes it's crystal clear. I find that Doctrine and Covenants 8 applies a lot for me. I'll tell it in your mind and in your heart. I've talked with the, our young men about this in lessons before, and maybe the young women too. I can't remember who I've talked about this with. <laughs> but sometimes if something makes sense in our mind but not our heart, or vice versa, if we're having a really nice feeling watching a cute movie but it's not in our mind, then those aren't revelation. But the Lord has promised. His pattern is mind and heart. I'll match it up. It'll make perfect sense to you. And that's I've had that experience a lot where something just made perfect sense up here. I'm pointing at my head. And something makes perfect sense down here, I'm pointing at my heart, and it lines up perfectly. And to me, that's, that's revelation. That's a, that's a time when I just feel settled. Settled's a good word for me. I just feel settled and feel like, okay, I got it, Lord. That, that's what you want. That's, that's the answer. So sometimes we have that, right? The mind and the heart combine. Yeah. But oftentimes they don't. Right. And for, for a lot of us, sometimes that happens a lot. Yeah. How do you deal with when they don't align? What do you do to to overcome that or to, to proceed forward when, when they don't align? What do you do? Yeah. Oh, I love that question. And I don't mean what's what the textbook the, answer, what's the textbook answer mm -hmm. but rather what do you do personally yeah. as Jake? What do you do to, to resolve that? I try to keep moving my feet. I feel like I'm trying to recall a President Monson quote where he said, uh, the Lord can't guide our footsteps if we're not willing to move our feet. So mm -hmm. try to keep moving my feet. I've, I've found out that the question we ask is important. Sometimes if we ask the Lord a loaded question, we're not going to get a straight answer. You know, we're supposed to study it out in our mind. I know, I know you said not the book answer, but keep studying out in my mind. Keep, keep working on it. And take, another, take another proposal back to the Lord. All right. I didn't feel great about that last one, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm going to trust you that that wasn't what you wanted. I've kept thinking about it. And how about this? Is this what you need? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? But keep moving. I guess I've learned that sitting down and waiting for an answer to flow down is not the way it works. For me, anyway. Maybe for other people, yes. But for this guy... In my hard-headedness, I've got to keep moving my feet and keep looking for the right answer. And, and I've, I've found without fail that eventually I'll, I'll, be, I'll be guided to the answer that I'm supposed to have. So you came home from your mission. Yeah. Where did you go to school? Utah State University. Okay. Ivy right. League West, as most people call it. So, <laughs> or not. <laughs> no, it, was a great, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. And what did you study and why did you decide to study that? My undergrad, I, I settled on a, just kind of a generic business Spanish degree. I always kind of knew I wanted to go on to grad school and, and do something beyond a bachelor's, but I had a, I had a hard time figuring out what that was. I think about my senior year, I, I bumped into a guy that was doing a, a program, a master's program called Instructional Technology. It's a, it's a mix of educational theory, business, and computers all kind of wrapped into one. And that sounded fascinating to me. And, and I, through a strange turn of events, I, I, I knew the political science department had at Utah State. He called me into his office one day about five days before graduation. He said, what are you doing after you graduate? I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm interviewing for jobs. And he said, <laughs> well, look, I know people back in D.C. I had just had something open up on Capitol Hill. Go do an internship on Capitol Hill. I'm like, Randy, I'm not a political science. I don't care. Just go out. Anyway, and he was a good guy. And, and so I took him at his word. I loaded up my car a few weeks later. I drove out here and I did an internship on the Hill, which was formative for me and, and awesome. 
while I was out here, I kept digging into that particular master's degree and applied back at Utah State. They happened to have one of the best programs in the nation at Utah State, got in. So after six months out here working on the Hill, I went back and did that. So I, I got two degrees from Utah State. I liked it so much I paid them twice. And then ended up getting another degree later. But but that that was that was kind of my journey. I. I wish I could say, like in kindergarten, I stood up and said, I want to be a doctor when I grow up, and, and that's the path I followed. No, it was very much discovery for me all along the way. At, at times, I still joke with people, I'm not exactly sure what I want to be when I grow up, but uh, <laughs> it was very much a, a path of discovery. But I'm glad because the path I took, trying to ask, hey, is this where I'm supposed to be right now? There have just been so many twists and turns along the way, and, and I feel like it led Amy and I to here. We, we are where we're supposed to be right now. and. All of those little twists and turns along the way, and when, you know, one door opening and another one closing, and us following through the open door, it has been it's been a blessing, and I would never, I don't think I'd change anything. Well, tell us how you met Amy. <laughs> Good question. We, <laughs> in one of my words in, in Logan, after my mission, we met and we were friends for a while. Our roommates would hang out together, and I don't think there was a romantic spark per se. We knew each other for three years. We were friends and our roommates, we were all friends and hung out a lot for, for about three years. She graduated, moved to Salt Lake to start teaching and we stayed in touch. She invited me down to come see uh, President Hinckley was doing a fireside for all the young single adults and she had tickets. So I, I drove down one Sunday night and met her there. And afterwards she said, you ever thought about dating? And I freaked out <laughs> and I left without saying anything and I avoided her for a few weeks. and. It took me about a year, so crazy story of stupidity on my part, but actually I shouldn't say that. We, we've, we've since realized that if we would have tried to date any sooner, it probably wouldn't have worked out because we, we had some seasoning, both of us, to do <laughs> to make sure we were ready. About a year later, my mom called me and she said, hey, I think she was worried about me at that point. She thought I was going to never get married, probably. I was 25. Hey, I, I bought some tickets for Capitol Theater in Salt Lake. A Beauty and the Beast Broad, Broadway show was coming through town. And she said, I bought an extra ticket if you want to take someone. And I hung up the phone. And my immediately thought was, my immediate thought was, well, I'd have the most fun if I took Amy, but who should I take? Who should I take? Who should I? <laughs> and then I just like slapped myself in the forehead. And I'm like, you're a stinking idiot. You are so stupid. And I called her and I said, come to this. She's like, yeah, I'll come. That sounds fun. And after that, I think we both kind of realized that, that it could be a little bit more. And, and it actually went kind of fast after that. Maybe not fast in like BYU terms, but uh, <laughs> sorry for those who are, sorry if you're a BYU person, but a little joke. Um, but I don't know, six months later we were married, and, but I don't feel like it was rushed because we knew each other for three, almost yeah. four years before that, and we yeah. were really good friends. And I, I highly endorse the marry your best friend because it's, it's been great. We've, you know, marriage isn't ever perfect because you're two imperfect people, but it's been, it's been nice to be married to my best friend. We are, I just, enjoy every day being with her. It's a real blessing. Being married is not easy and there's challenges in, every, yeah. in everybody's life. It sounds like yours is, is fantastic being married to your best friend. <laughs> Tell us about a time when you, know, you struggled as a family and had to rely on the Lord. Yeah, boy. Not long after we were married, I got the job offer. I was fresh out of grad school. I was doing some manual labor waiting for the job offers to come in. It was a little bit of a recession at the time. And the Navy called. I had applied for a job with the Navy as a civilian. Not, I didn't join the Navy. I was 26. They probably wouldn't have taken me at that point anyway, if, even if I wanted to be in uniform. And they said, okay, but the job's in Pensacola, Florida. And we're newlyweds. We're like, okay, well, it was a little hard for her. She, she has a big family, and they're all in Utah. My family, decent size, all in Utah. We're not quite as close. I mean, her family, every big holiday they're together, the eating, you know. And, and the thought of moving across the country was tough, but we thought, hey, because they said it'll be two years, and then 
you know, we may place you or you may not want to stay with us. And, you know, they kind of pitched it that way. And, and we were like, okay, hey, Florida, two years, newlywed, sounds like fun. We'll go down there. Two-year vacation, sounds fun. And we got down there and, and she was expecting our first and it was kind of shock. Uh, we rolled down the window and it was August and the humidity came in and we're like, what have we done? And <laughs> that first little bit of being there, I had to travel a little bit for this work. So she was alone in Pensacola, didn't know anybody. And it was, it was hard for her and it was hard on her family. And I think, I hope I'm not diming her out by saying this. I've only met a few people like her in my life where generally wherever she is, people are smiling. I mean, she has that kind of personality. Absolutely, yeah. And she kind of had a neat experience there where she was like, okay, I know how it feels to be lonely. And it wasn't that the ward members, they weren't being mean. They were all living their own lives. They were all busy with their own things. But she just said, I am going to reach out to people. I know how this feels, and I don't want people to have to feel like this. If I can make a difference for somebody and reach out to them and make them feel included and loved, I'm going to do it. So that was hard for us, you know, the two years of being away. And <laughs> she spent a fair amount of time here. And when, when Reagan was born, she would fly by here, I mean Utah. She'd fly back to family, and family would come visit us. But I think those, you know, that was tough being that far from family for both of us, more for her probably than me, because her family was so tight. But I think we learned, learned to rely on the Lord, rely on each other, reach out, serve, right? When you're in a bad spot, the best thing you can do is serve and help other people. And, yeah. and the Lord lifts you in your burdens. And that was really formative for us. And I think, and she just has a servant heart anyway. She is, I'm amazed at her. I, I sit back and try to analyze something and she's already gone and just served the person instead of stewing over the problem. She just goes and takes them something or just lets, lets them know that they're loved. And that was, that was very formative for us, I think, and a real blessing for us. I think from a, from a congregation standpoint, we always look at the bishop and the bishopric, mm-hmm. right? And those that are serving in, in large callings as, as their life is perfect, right? They're, they've got mm. everything all together. That everything <laughs> is going beautifully. Spoiler and alert. Being, and, being, and being blessed. <laughs> yeah. uh, d- tell me about that. Is, that. is that true? No. Short answer is no. I love my counselors. I love everybody. On the, well, I, we have such an amazing board family. I love our whole ward. I, I just love that we have so many different personalities and political beliefs that cover the entire spectrum. And, and I think we generally all just, we care for each other and look out for each other. It's just a beautiful thing. Back to your question, I, I love my counselors. We, we often just, the three of us, sit together and kind of compare notes and talk about struggles we're having and how our families aren't perfect. But the Lord does bless us, I know that. I had a very, one of those unique spiritual experiences, I guess, we were talking about that a little bit ago. When we were in Florida, there was this family in the ward and, and they, were, they had teenage kids and this was just, they seemed like the perfect family. The kids all liked each other, they were a great example to everybody, they were happy, they were good looking, I mean this family, and he was our home teacher, and he came to visit us one Sunday, and we're like, what's the secret? We want, our, we want to look like your family in 10 years. Humble guy, and he just kind of smiled and said, I don't know what to tell you. I guess the gospel works. What can I tell you? The gospel works. And I've never forgotten that. So when, you know, for those who think the bishopric has perfect families and perfect lives, no, we don't. We're all working through it the same, but I have a testimony the gospel works. It does. The Savior, whatever the problem, whatever the question, the Savior is the answer. And he can help us, all of us. His, his atonement's for all of us. Maybe even more so for his flawed, <laughs> flawed ward leaders who are trying to do the best they can. Well, since moving here, mm-hmm. have you had a, an experience in your life where you've, you've really had to rely on the, on the Lord to help you and your family get through it? I'm grateful we moved here. I've grown so much professionally in the last eight years, exponentially, more than I ever did in the previous 10 or 12, however long I've been working for the Navy, which I hope have served me well as maybe a leader, as a dad, as a husband. In particular, right after we got here, I was the manager of a project and it started to go sideways and 
people started to turn on each other and turn on us and say bad things about me personally behind my back, and that was hurtful, and I caught wind of it. Through back channels, heard about it, and it was tough. It was tough. I try to be a kind, good person and do the right thing, and, and to have some of this backbiting was, was hurtful. And It sounds maybe silly now when I say it, or it sounds like it wasn't a big deal, but there was some relying on the Lord and seeking His approval and trying to forgive some of those people that were backbiting and trying to pin the project's struggles on me. And, but there was some reliance on the Lord there and the ability to, to forgive and move on and keep pressing forward and, and keep moving my feet when it might have been easier to give up and say, I don't need this. I learned some valuable lessons there spiritually and, and practically. It, it was a good experience. I've interviewed a lot of folks that uh, in their interviews, they sometimes will mention how difficult it is to forgive. Yeah. You have an experience now where it was difficult for yeah. you to forgive. How did you do it? Great question. And I've had other experiences too. Uh, dating someone who kind of let me down and that was hard to forgive. I recognized later that there was an element of forgiving myself in that too. That's one of the miracles of the atonement, I think. I mean, intellectually, I can tell myself I forgive you. But in my experience, there's a change of heart where we can't manufacture that. We can't force that. We can't convince our heart to forgive somebody else. It's been my experience that the atonement's very real and the Savior can help us with that. He can help take those hurtful, prideful, any array of feelings we have that, that have to surround forgiveness, and he, he can help us with that. And that's been my experience. Again, it's not just an intellectual exercise. There, there's a part of that where the Savior will rush in and he'll, he'll help us with forgiveness. It's not easy. It's not easy, and, and I've not been hurt anywhere close to as badly as some of our Ward family members and others that I know. And, you know, it's not as easy as patting him on the head and say, there, there, you'll be all right. You know, the, Lord, the Lord will help you through that. He will, he can. But it's been my experience that he will and he can. And it may take time, but, but that's one of the miracles of the, of the atonement is he can help us with that. I know he's helped me when I've needed that. Forgiving others and forgiving myself. You've talked a little bit about some of the ward members and, and your feelings about the ward. Tell us a little bit about how you feel about Rolling Valley Ward and especially as leading us. Fantastic. I joke that I think the other bishops in the stake want to throw a punch me quite often when they hear just how great our ward is and how great we're doing. We have over 100 youth and they're phenomenal. They're the best of the best. When I look at our, our adults and their desire to serve and their ability to serve in so many ways, it's just phenomenal. Yeah, I, I joke with people that my mission statement as a bishop is not to mess things up. It's a fantastic ward family, just an, an abundance of talent, an abundance of love, an abundance of, of just service-minded people. It's just a spiritual uplifting experience to look out at the audience every week, the congregation and sacrament meeting, and just see all these faces of people I know and I love, and I'm just, just grateful to be with them and to know that we are, I use the term word family, and I don't, I don't use that loosely. We, we are a family, I think. A lot of us don't have blood family anywhere close by. We all rely on each other and help each other, and I feel like you know, we have 250 family members here that would, would do anything for each other, and, and would, and it's just it's humbling and something for which I'm very grateful. Well, I, I feel the love that you have. Just hearing you talk about it, I feel the love that you have for the ward members, and we appreciate the love that you have for us and the love that you show for us, so thank you. No, thank you for that. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here together, right? We're all, yeah. we're all doing our best. We're all working together to, to achieve that ultimate goal, and no ward I'd rather be with right now trying to achieve the goal than this one. One of the final questions that I always ask is, what message would you want to send? If somebody was to listen to this podcast your episode, you know, 100 years from now, what would you want to tell them? I would want to tell them there are a lot of loud voices in the world. A lot of thought leaders, a lot of influencers. And then they may not even be audible voices, human voices. A lot, lot of loud voices in the world trying to tell us how to think and feel and what to believe. And I think what I would tell 
whoever this is that's hearing this later in life or 100 years from now, the voice that matters is a still small voice. Learn how to listen to that one and put your stock in that one because that's where the answers are that'll bring peace, that'll bring happiness, true happiness, true peace. That's where you'll find the truth. The other voices are loud and persuasive, they really are. But the still small voice is the one you need to find and that's where true happiness lies. That's what I would say. And you've talked a little bit about how the still small voice talks to you, all of it. It talks to us differently, right? each one of us differently, but that's a great message. Well, thank you so much for joining us thank you. on the podcast today on Rolling Valley Stories. It's been great to get to know you a little bit more, hear more about you and your experiences and your stories and how you grew up. And we love you as a bishop. You're doing fantastic. We fully support you and are so thankful that you're, that you're our bishop right now. We've had tremendous bishops in the past. Yep but we're grateful that you're our bishop now and really appreciate all the service that you're providing to us. Well, thank you. It's, it's an honor, and I think I told you, but thanks for letting me do this. I felt like a hypocrite if I was asking everybody else to be on the podcast, and I hadn't done it yet, so thanks for letting me have a turn, and thanks for your service, Brad. This is, this is special what you're doing. We appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Well, that wraps up another edition of Rolling Valley Stories. We thank you for joining us. Appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.